Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woohoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day! Woohoo! <laughs> it's hump day. Hump day! Ladies and gentlemen, to the Donaldson Files here in the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, I have uh, on the line Kevin Roche. We, this is going to be an, an, an unusual show because we had some technical difficulties uh, with our uh, video, but we're going to go audio and going live right now on Block Talk Radio. There will be no commercials. This show is going to be brought to you by the Don- my latest book, America at the Abyss, Will America Survive? You can get this book at Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, and LibertyHillPressPublishing.com or any bookstore you want. And also you can listen to this show uh, uh, between four, uh, 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. on the BachelorNews.Airtime.Pro, the BachelorNews.Airtime.Pro. I have on the line with me the editor of The Healthy Skeptic, uh, Kevin Roche, Kevin, welcome to the show, and thank you for your patience. Happy to be here again, Tom. Yeah, well, like I said, well, like I say, we are going to find out the mysteries uh, uh, with your you know, with your browser, and hopefully, we can figure something out in the future. But I do, but I wanted to kind of bring you on, and like I said, we're going to go straight through uh, this uh, half hour because you got. So much information you can provide this audience, and I'm going to just start. And what I wanted to do tonight is obviously we we'll talk about the, you know, the lessons for the pandemic. What you think we ought to be doing? A couple of quick questions, but I also want to talk about, you know, a more broader issue because you've written quite a bit on overall healthcare, healthcare spending as part of this, and you've also talked about, you know, lessons to be learned overall. Uh, you know whether and I, and I and whether or not you know you know what's going to happen in the future beyond just the healthcare, but beyond this, because you've written quite a bit on that. So, but let's start right off the bat. What are if you had two or three lessons to come out of the pan you know, out of this uh, last two years? What would you say they be? Well, I I would hope that the public has learned to be a lot more skeptical of what they're told, both by politicians and by supposed experts, whatever the topic, including public health. So that's that's one thing that people should have learned. And I think the last couple of weeks when we've seen such a radical change on policies like masking or even vax mandates should uh, be the clue to people that that a lot of what they were being told early on really didn't have any basis. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing is just I, I think what should have been apparent from the start, which is when you're dealing with a respiratory virus, your ability to control it in any way is extremely limited. 
Um, and so you just have to be aware that the actions you take are not likely to be effective but could have very harmful um, unintended uh, consequences, which is certainly what we've seen during this epidemic. Yeah, now, yeah obviously, because I think the skepticism side of the equation is important and because I agree with you 100%. I mean, if we sat back and we looked at what the, you know, what was, what was being said in February, you know, March of 2020 and and look at it compared to today, it's like, I mean, literally, uh, I mean, there's a lot to be skeptical of. And maybe to me, the worst thing about it, I don't, did you, have, did you ever get a chance to read Scott Atlas's book? I, I have uh, read excerpts of it. Yeah. Well, he kind of, I mean, he makes the same point you've been making because he said, you know, it's kind of one of those things where he said, you know, going into the, the White House dealing with the, you know, with Tony Fauci, Debbie Burks, and others, he said what he shocked him was the lack of science backing their decision. And when he tried to promote any science, it would be like, we're not here to listen. <laughs> and, I, and I found that to be rather distressing, where you have literally scientists basically saying, we're not going to depend on the science. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's kind of the difference between somebody like Dr. Atlas, who has at least some uh, private kind of real world experience and people like Fauci in particular who, who's been a government bureaucrat his whole life and frankly um, doesn't understand uh, the real world only understands kind of the politics of dealing with a with a government bureaucracy well let me say follow the question because here's the other aspect that comes to play is this for politicians themselves uh, you know, and again, I'm going to go back to you know Atlas's book, and he talks about okay, Trump and Pence, and the thing is, they, you know, they, you know, it was in their power to make changes. You know, if something didn't appear to be working, you know, it's it's their responsibility to let's find people who get the right answers, and yet they didn't do that. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, you, um, you can be a little sympathetic to politicians who <clears throat> probably aren't well equipped to sort through kind of more scientific stuff. On the other hand, you do see examples of people like DeSantis in Florida who made it his business to be sure he understood the issues well enough so he could make his own judgment about, you know, whether or not something uh, made sense to do. So I, I think part of what happened is there, there were a lot of leaders, our governor here in Minnesota is one of them, who just caught up, got caught up in the, well, everybody's doing lockdown, so I'm going to do a lockdown. I'm going to close the schools. Um, I'm going to enact a max, mask mandate, all of those kinds of things. So some people were just acting like lemmings didn't even really make an effort to ask themselves about whether there was any research that supported those actions. Um, that, to me, is inexcusable. Other people, and I suspect Trump uh, falls into this category, um, probably just frankly didn't have enough background knowledge to know how to ask the questions, probably weren't detail-oriented enough to really want to understand um, 
And it may be an unusual politician, somebody like, again, like a DeSantis, who's um, capable of kind of standing up and having the courage to, uh, in some cases, defy the advice that people were hearing from public health experts uh, and to kind of make their own judgments about what's appropriate. Well, the other thing, you know, I want to, because, again, you've, you know, you've kind of questioned. I know that we've had the issues of people, you know, Peter McCullough and others' early treatment, yeah, which sounds logical and common sense. But it also depends on the drugs you're going to use for that. And again, it, you know, we got ourselves more in the political side of the equation versus the scientific side. You know, what was the science backing, let's say, McCullough's position on early treatment and the choices of drugs that he was willing to, you know, experiment with? And I know others like John Anamolis and yourself looked at the data and said, well, you know what? You know, the more we look at some of these studies, you know, some of these drugs may not be as effective as what we want them to be. Uh, your thoughts on that particular debate and, again, how that – did it become too politicized or did we get to that point of politicization of the, of the debate? Because certainly there was a reasonable scientific you know, rationale for some of that. Your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, first of all, I, I think in general, and this is – Frankly, generally, the way medicine is approached in this country, doctors should be free to, you know, make their best judgment about what treatment will help a patient. Both doctors and patients, in the course of doing that, should have access to um, all the available information and, and should understand how to absorb that information in making their decisions. The early treatment thing has sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, been captured by the anti-vax people. You know, they, they have kind of seized on, well, if we just all took in ivermectin or hydrochloroquine or w- whatever, that, you know, we wouldn't need vaccines and everybody would be fine. And, and in all honesty, that's simply not true. I, I do think that there are, um, there do appear to be drugs that have made a difference, in particular monoclonal antibodies. And I think that having those widely available so that um, when it's apparent someone uh, is infected and has a likely, is at high risk of a serious uh, disease outcome that those people should be, you know, treated. So, uh, but the notion that early treatment somehow would make the epidemic disappear is a misunderstanding of the typical respiratory viral infection process. Once you're infected, it's, you know, again, monoclonal antibodies appear to uh, make a difference for a lot of people. But other than that, there's there's not much that I see that really would keep somebody from being uh, getting pretty sick if they if they otherwise are at risk of that. Yeah. Now, now let's go and turn to the vaccine again. You've been one of those who talked about both the strength and the limitation of vaccines. So, if there's a lesson to be learned for the future, because I've always viewed these vaccines as a first generation. <laughs> You know, they were an end all be all, the end of, but just the beginning of, let's say, a coronaviral 
antiviral or anti-vaccine or <clears throat> vaccine pardon and so what are the first lessons we ought to be the public officials need to understand about the limitation of vaccines and the strength of vaccines yeah i i, I think one thing we've all learned really clearly is that you can't rely on short uh, follow-up periods to assess uh, effectiveness against infection at least effectiveness against serious disease may hold up a little better and i say may because i think the evidence is still coming in on that i i you know seeing the early data it, i was surprised by how effective the vaccines appeared to be at that time only because the history of respiratory virus vaccines is not good. The flu vaccines, which have been around forever, basically don't do much. They, they don't work that well. People have been trying to get a vaccine for RSV forever. Um, so, you know, whatever it is about respiratory um, virus uh, viruses, it, it's been very difficult to develop effective vaccines. And I think the big lesson we should have learned at this point is that in a future epidemic, we shouldn't be overly optimistic that a vaccine is going to end, uh, is going to stop infections, is going to stop transmission. We, we clearly don't understand uh, respiratory um, viral infections well enough to know how to develop vaccines that pretty quickly prevent uh, prevent an infection and prevent people from transmitting. Oh yeah, okay. Well, because let me put this. Let me give it my interpretation and tell me where I'm right and where I'm wrong. Yeah, when I look at the data so far. If you're my age, I'm 68, and I know you've been vaccinated and you got the booster, that it has some benefit as far as reducing hospitalization, reducing death. And if you had underlying conditions, probably you should have been a target for the vaccine. But on the other side of the equation, if you're young and healthy, the risks and benefits didn't exactly, uh, weren't exactly matching up. And maybe they were not the target audience, or let's just say a 17-year-old male, healthy male, may not may have not had the benefit. Would not let's say the risk didn't the risk basically outshine the benefit for somebody of that nature. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I I, I think what we've seen with a long enough period and in particular with Omicron is that uh, vaccine effectiveness, vaccine effectiveness against infection was pretty limited. Um, and that was true across all age groups. And it was true uh, in older people where, where you're most concerned about the risk of serious disease. It appears that, um, Protection against hospitalization and death held up uh, better. Um, it looks like, however, uh, that it probably lessened a fair amount in regard to older people. Um, and as you said, I definitely think, um, you know, especially when it comes to children, that the risk uh, from vaccination, uh, the risk-benefit 
calculation in my mind wouldn't support certainly mandatory vaccination of children. Uh, and frankly, if I were a parent, I wouldn't vaccinate my child. Um, they're, they're frankly better off getting infected. It's likely to be asymptomatic or extremely mild. And once they've been infected, they'll have immunity that all the research shows is as good or better than uh, comes from vaccination alone. Yeah. Now, Dan, I'm going to, we're going to move on a little bit further, but there's one. There was a paper you put in most recently, one of your most recent blogs, dealing with the NBA, where they claims the boosted players and staff had lower rate of infections. But here's the question I'm going to throw back. Now, you mentioned, you know, effective timelines, you know, was ignored. But to me, another thought would be in this particular case, though, is that the average NBA player is a pretty healthy athlete. And that the chances of them, A, getting hospitalized, getting, you know, seriously ill, or even death, are very slim to begin with. Uh, so is this, would that be another aspect when you look at something like somebody claims like that to sit back and say, eh, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, uh, the uh, NBA players and staff are, are not a group whose results should be extrapolated to the general population for just, the reason you said the players are obviously young and, and very healthy and staff generally is also younger and, and uh, usually in pretty good shape as well. So no, that I, I don't think the general population should, uh, should take anything from studies on NBA players. Yeah. Now let's go back to, uh, I'm going to go to a much broader base. Now, you've talked about uh, health care spending, where it's going. Uh, kind of review some of the things you've written about over the past year. You know, where's the money being spent? Is it being spent wisely? And where could it be better spent? Well, <clears throat> this is, that's obviously a very complicated topic that you can, yeah. you can spend hours discussing. I think... You know, what's happened, so very basically, if you look at healthcare spending, it has two components. One is utilization. How many services of different types are used? And what's the mix of that utilization? Do we have a lot of hospitalizations? Do we have a lot of drug use? Do we have people getting a lot of MRI scans? Then the second piece is the price, the cost of each of those services. And I think there's a lot of uh, talk that people see about, you know, oh, we have overutilization and waste and stuff. And, and frankly, the research, you know, there's some of that. But the biggest problem, the reason the U.S. spends so much more on healthcare than other places and where most of the growth in health spending has come from is on the price side. You know, we're all very aware of that in regard to drugs, which have high introductory prices in the U.S., and those prices tend to grow very rapidly um, every year in the U.S., Doctors are paid a lot more in the U.S. than they are paid in other countries. We pay a lot more for a hospitalization than they pay in other countries. So the, to me, the, we, we've, all, we've spent a lot of time, governments have spent a lot of time trying to design policies that um, limit utilization, 
And that's not where the problem is. The the problem uh, has been more on the unit cost side. The other thing, and I, I write about this frequently, is we haven't focused enough on where the spending really is and on what we can really do about it. And, and that relates to the concentration of spending. And I wrote about this in a post, I think, within the last month or so. If you look at the concentration of spending, you routinely see that a very small number of patients account for a huge percent of spending. And you also see, so see the flip. You, you, we have a huge percentage of our population, something like 50% or more, that spends a few hundred dollars a year on health care. And when I look at those kinds of numbers, one of the things that obviously tells you is you need to focus on, you know, how to care most effectively and efficiently for those people with high health care spending. But it also calls into question the whole system of insurance we have where we're asking everyone to pay for, either directly or indirectly through wage reductions and taxes, we're asking everyone to pay for very expensive health insurance when, frankly, the majority of the population probably doesn't need it. So I I think we're overdue for um, kind of a look at, you know, is the whole way we finance health care consistent with what the nature of health care spending is? Okay, so basically what we may have to look at is because it makes sense in the sense that the older you are, uh, the, you know, just like, again, it's, you, you look at the pandemic, you know, who were the people more likely to die or be hospitalized? They were those people in underlying condition or the elderly in health care in general. That seems to be where the, you know, where the spending is going to be done. Again, if you're healthy, young, you know, you may not spend a lot of money or need to. So the question is how to find that right balance, let's say, you know, to having a, 25-year-old individual on the way who's just starting out trying to get their first, second a job and have them pay a much higher percentage uh, for health care. You know, age is a factor, but it's less of a factor than you might think. There, there are certain uh, categories of disease like dementia and Alzheimer's that obviously are more these are have become very expensive diseases um, and they are obviously more prevalent in the elderly but we have a lot of cancer which has become more of a chronic it used to be you got cancer you know they either cured you and the episode was over in a relatively short period of time or frankly you died and so there there wasn't a lot of ongoing spending we have turned cancer into generally a chronic disease with very high uh, spending. And there is a lot of cancer um, in people in their 30s and in their 40s. Um, and those people now increasingly are treated with drug regimens that can cost tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Um, so it's the, the less so than in previous uh, generations, um, spending is, is not always just concentrated in, in the elderly. It's kind of scattered. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. I guess I didn't, that's a good way. I think uh, that's a good point that you know, I didn't think of myself, but that's a very good point that you're making. So in effect, people who let's say at the age of 40 may have died early are now living 20 or 30 more years with their, yes. their cancer, much in the same way as somebody, you know, you know, I remember my grandfather, my dad told said once said about my grandfather, he said, you know, he died of a heart disease at the age of 50, you know, in his early 50s. As my dad said, you know, you know, he lived in our generation, you know, in generation, he would have lived to 75 or 80 and probably get prostate cancer. <laughs> so, it, yeah, but, yeah, or, but yeah, that's absolutely you know, true. Yeah. yeah. So now the other last one, we got about five minutes left, but I wanted to kind of get to a more broader thing. You've been kind of, you know, overall, what you're seeing, not just with the pandemic, but what you're seeing you know, with America today, you know, you, you know, you know, is there something different that maybe you and I grew up with? It just seems to me that there are a lot of people who basically are perfectly willing to be cowed into doing things that, let's say, a, a generation ago we wouldn't have done. I can't imagine, you know, 30, 40 years ago, the kind of mandates have that Americans would have accepted it for two years. Uh well, I, I I think what I've noted, and I believe this is true, is that whatever's happened to the younger generations, and I suspect it was in schools, they they you know one of the first things we just talked about was you know the need for skepticism, and the need you know the need people need to be able to think about how to gather data, how to analyze it, how to draw conclusions from it. And, you know, not to trust, my God, of all things, don't trust right off the bat stuff you hear from the government. Um, I don't know what's happened to young people, and I think it's partly also to blame on social media. But they seem almost completely incapable, and I hear this from business people as well. They seem incapable of any extended attempt to read, gather information, analyze it, uh, and and come up with their own kind of conclusions. They are very prone to just latching on, uh, often in, in an emotional way, with whatever they hear, and they're not particularly interested in listening to or hearing other viewpoints or perspectives. And that's a dangerous thing. That's a very dangerous thing. It's easily taken advantage of by politicians. It leads to uh, support of policies that aren't in the best interest of society at large. So, yeah, I, I think there are uh, trends yeah. that, that are not good and um, and I think those have been revealed in the epidemic. But as I said, I'm somewhat hopeful that maybe um, maybe people will come out of this being a little more skeptical about what they're being told. Well, yeah, the other thing too. Now you've written quite a bit in the last couple. You know, like you just did a blog, uh, did a few, said a few things on the Ukraine situation, and you, and so it kind of. Give me a summary of what you're seeing from your perspective as a libertarian conservative. I'm not sure I should call you a libertarian or conservative, or is there a combination of both? <laughs> but, yeah, I, I tend to think of myself as pretty much a libertarian. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, okay. Um, you wrote like today, for example. Yeah. Yeah. You wrote today, for example, dealing with the Ukraine. Is some of your observations? What are the observations that you that you came up with for the audience? Wow. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I, I, you know, maybe this is simplistic, but. I, I, there are evil people. There are really bad people in this world who yeah. who are clearly psychopaths and sociopaths, and Putin is one of them. And th- there is no excuse or justification of any type or explanation for what he's doing in Ukraine. And and the other thing I always keep in mind, just as during the epidemic, you know, the thing I was most concerned about is the impact on children who are powerless, the impact on people who are sick and who were being terrorized into not going to get health care that they needed. And we're seeing the consequences of that. And, and in the Ukraine situation, I think about these people who two weeks ago were living in a pretty advanced country, had jobs, went to school, had families, and their lives have just been upended, frankly, because of this psychopath who has this delusion that he can recreate the Soviet Union and this immense resentment against the U.S. and Europe because he thinks they caused the Soviet Union to fall apart. Um, he's a dangerous guy, and this is obviously a very tricky situation yeah. and we have to navigate a line between not accepting this and, but not kind of causing uh, a, a worse uh, situation to arise. Okay, I want to stop you. Yeah, I'm going to stop you right there because we're back at the end of the show. I want to thank you very much. You can follow uh, Kevin Roche on HealthySkeptic.com. HealthySkeptic.com. Thank you, sir, for being on the show, and thank you for your patience. My my pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Okay. Bye. Bye.